0: Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3, there was a man who was incarcerated, he was in isolation, total darkness, except two times a day when they brought food to his cell, during the time that the door was open, the light from the hall shined into his cell. Whenever he heard the footsteps coming down the hall, he would turn his back to the door, would position his Bible so that the light from the hall would shine over his shoulder onto the Bible, and during the time the door was open, he would read. The jailer became curious about that. He said to him one day, You know, all these other prisoners in here are half-starved as you are, and I can hardly get the food in the door before they take it away from me and are gobbling it down, but you don't seem to have any interest in the food at all. And the man said, Well, I'm hungry, but I can find my mouth in the dark, but I cannot read my Bible. In the dark. A man was working construction and had dynamite go off in his hands. He lost his hands. He lost his sight. He lost the feeling in much of his face. He had not been a particularly religious man, but that experience, as you might imagine, caused him to really want to know about God. But he did not have any eyes to read the Bible. He did not have any hands to be able to feel a Braille Bible. He tried to read a Braille Bible with his lips, but he did not have enough feeling in his lips to decipher the different shapes. But he discovered that he could read the moon-type Braille with his tongue. And so he read the Bible through with his tongue four times. A young man came to Socrates, and he said, I, "I want to have knowledge. I want to be like you. Show me how to be like you." And he said, "Do you really want? Do you really want to be like me?" He said, "Yes." He said, "Follow me." And he took him out into the water up to about his chest or neck. And then Socrates took the young man and held him under the water. And held him under. And held him under. And finally he pulled him up just before he thought he would drown. And he took him back to the bank and they sat down together. And when the boy caught his breath, he said, Son, what did you want more than anything in the world when you were under the water? He said, I wanted air. Air, I couldn't breathe. I had no thought of anything but air. And he said, Son, when you want knowledge like you wanted air, you will become me. We live in a land of Bibles. I would dare guess that you have in your possession three, four, a dozen Bibles. We have the Bible on our phones, our tablets, our computers. Bible verses are on billboards around us. We, We have Bible materials mailed to our house. We have Bibles. But you know, even in a land of Bibles, most people never read the Bible. I mean all the way through. They read bits and pieces. They, they look for verses to answer an argument they got into at work. Or, or they look for some comfort on a dark day. But they never have read from Genesis to Revelation. They've, they've never sought the message of God with any intent. The Bible says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The word study there means to give diligence. It doesn't mean just to give a a passing thought to it. It doesn't mean I'm going to try to check off my Bible reading chart for one year and and get that done. But it means more than that. It means to digest it. It means to take it into our thinking process. It means to to incorporate it into our decision making. It means to walk in the light. Study to show thyself approved. Now the first step to that end is becoming acquainted with the Bible. It is becoming aware of the parameters of the Bible, what the Bible is about, how to interpret the Bible. Now you can't do that in a Sunday. You know, you'll you'll be doing that over, um, over a lifetime. And you'll be constantly improving as you go down through the years of sermons about Bible study and you are motivated by your own Bible reading to learn more and And you'll learn what works for you that might not work as well for someone else. All that is to be expected. But the beginning process of it is to do what we're doing today is just to get the outline of the Bible, to understand the parts of the Bible, to be able to plug in the pieces of the Bible so that we're not coming at it and wasting time because we we don't know what what we're trying to accomplish or we don't understand the book that we have in our possession. This is the mind of God revealed. It's the only book that is a living book, Hebrews 4.12, which means that if it is planted in a human heart that is good soul, that is receptive to it, it will grow there. It will change the person that in, in, in whose mind it is deposited. And we will no longer be the same person we used to be. We'll be a better person. And if we will cultivate that, it will mold and shift our life in the direction of heaven, and it will remake us internally in our thought processes into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We will begin to think like Christ. We will begin to make decisions as He would make them. We will begin to live in a way that is consistent with the way that He lived. That's the purpose of all Bible study is to be like Christ, to walk in His steps. 1 Peter 2.21-22 So what we're doing today is looking at one, two, three, just three ideas, one theme to the Bible. And all should commit this to memory, the salvation of man through Christ, to God's glory. That's easy to remember. Salvation, the book, if you can only if you can't remember that, just remember it's a book about salvation. And then if someone asks you who saves you, you would know that. And who deserves the credit, you would know that. So you know the theme of the Bible. It's about salvation. Number two there are two divisions to the Bible an Old Testament and a New Testament. The Old Testament was written for our learning, but we don't keep the old law anymore. We don't have to keep animals in a, in a fold outside our homes to offer at a certain time for a certain purpose. We have a sacrifice that was offered for us once for all time, Hebrews 9, 26 to 28. Jesus has taken care of all the sacrifices that ever need to be taken care of. We don't live under the Old Testament. In fact, if you hold the Old Testament in one hand and the New Testament in the other, as we did in our Bible class this morning... What you're holding here uh, are two different religions. You have in one hand Judaism. That's a totally different religion than Christianity. So you can't follow both books at the same time. There are two sections or divisions to the Bible. And then there are three dispensations. Patriarchal, Mosaic, Christian. I'm reviewing on purpose. I know some of you said, well, you already covered that. Well... What is the mother of learning repetition? If you've got to remember something, you have to hear it more than once. Very few of us remember, have minds that can remember things just like, you know, like that. We need to hear them repeated. So you have three dispensations. Patriarchal dispensation, 2,500 years. Mosaic dispensation, 1,500 years. Christianity, Christian dispensation, 2,000 years. Now don't tell yourself, don't, don't tell yourself, I can't remember that. Anybody can remember this? Just intend. 10. Uh, if I talk to these young men over here about sports statistics, which I love and I, and I also remember, they'll be able to tell me. Batting averages, you know, quarterback ratings, uh, yesterday's games, who did what, when, where, who won. Yeah, we can remember things we're interested in. If, if I were to talk to some of you ladies about recipes, you wouldn't have to go look it up and say, well, you need this much of this and this quantity of this and this. You just know it because you do it. So don't tell yourself you can't remember these numbers. Anybody can remember if we really want to. Now, we may need to write them down. We may not remember as well as we used to, and that it does happen over time. Write them down, review them. That's how you learn anything if you don't know it. So, but, but the first thing you've got to do is think you can do it. If you don't think you can do it, you won't do it. You'll just shut off your mind and you won't try to remember it, which is, which is foolish. Don't do that. Don't shortchange yourself into knowing less than you could know about God's Word. Alright, now let's go to the book of Genesis, <clears throat> chapter 3, and let's study three great pro- the first three great prophecies of Jesus in the Bible. The Bible is a book of prophecy. In fact, that's the single best evidence the Bible is inspired because it can't be faked. Here you have books that you can date at a certain time that, are, that give specific prophecies that were minutely fulfilled hundreds of years later, not in the lifetime of the person who gave the prophecy. And they were not prophecies that the person upon whom they were fulfilled could uh, enact or um, manufacture himself. So that's that's the greatest indication that the Bible is inspired. So here are the first three. Let's start. In Genesis 3, you have the temptation of man. Eve sins, gives to Adam. He eats the fruit too. And then God comes down and, in the garden, as evidently was His custom to have fellowship and communion with His creation. But today, something is different than it has ever been before. He doesn't see them. Now, God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. So, it's speaking in, in um, accommodative language here, but He says, Adam, where art thou? Not for his information, but for Adam to see where he is. Why why am I not out there where I usually am with God? And uh, he was in the bushes, hiding. And God God asked him why. Uh, He said, well, I was naked. Who told you you were naked? Now, you have a small child. There's an age of innocence when they don't recognize that fact. It was like that with Adam and Eve in the early days. Even though they were full grown, there was an age of innocence. But after they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, part of the devil's temptation was true. you'll You'll have your eyes opened. He painted it as something that would be good, but it was something that was bad. But their eyes were open. They saw they were naked. So they put on some covering, fig leaves, maybe something like a... Bathing suit would be today, covered up the private parts of the body, and that's about it. And they still feel naked, so they're in the and they were in by you know social standards where others unrelated to them would see them. And there they are, and God said, "Who told you were naked? Hast thou eaten of the fruit which I told you not to?" And then Adam does what no other husband ever did: blamed his wife. You know. The woman that thou gavest me, she did it. Maybe he's blaming God. The woman that thou gavest me. If you hadn't given me this woman, maybe I wouldn't have done this. But either way, God was not pleased with that excuse. He had a mind of his own. He had volition to make his own decisions. But God turns his attention to Eve and says, and she, she has to give an account. And she said, well, the serpent beguiled me. That's Flip Wilson theology, you know. The devil made me do it. You know, we have control over what the devil can make us do. He can tempt us. He can lure us, but he cannot make us. So God goes from Adam to Eve to the serpent. He doesn't even ask the serpent. He just begins to mete out punishments in reverse order, serpent, woman, man. And it's not our purpose today to go further into the discussion of the punishments of Eve and Adam But I do want to focus on this prophecy that comes about because of the devil's actions here. And let's read, uh, verse 14 says he would be cursed. Now verse 15, and I, that's God, will put enmity, enmity. That's not a word that's real familiar probably to us. It's in the same word family with enemy. It refers to something that works against us. So I will put ill will, we might, we might insert here or replace here. I will put ill will between thee and the woman, between the devil and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. What would be the devil's seed? He doesn't have offspring, so it's not used in that sense. It's the same... It's the same as we saw in Genesis 6 earlier when the daughters of men married the sons of God. Daughters of men we identified as being the descendants of Cain who were irreligious, unbelievers. And so what he's saying here is that the unbelievers, those that are on the devil's side against God, thy seed, so your, your team, your army, your people, and her seed, who's that? Well, in a general sense it would be her offspring, her children, humanity, like the sons of God in chapter six, but it has more to do has more specific meaning than that, because we continue reading, and it that's a singular pronoun, it shall bruise thy head. And thou shalt bruise his see that heel. So he's he has identified, but he is implying an individual. Who is that individual? Well, I suppose that the devil did not know when this was told to him, and Adam and Eve surely did not know what was being referred to. And even Moses, uh, five, 500 or more years, well, no, 2,500 years later when he wrote this, I, I, unless God revealed it to him, he could not have known the Old Testament scholars and prophets, the same thing because there's no context to appreciate in the, in the immediate time frame when it's given. But now that we look back with the full revelation of New Testament Christianity, all the verses that we have, going back and looking on Genesis 3, we know exactly who it's talking about. Because Galatians 3.16 says that His seed is Christ. And Galatians 4, 4, and 5 say this, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, these four words, made of a woman. Made under the law for the redemption of those that were under the law. Made of a woman? That's not normal. As far as I can tell, God has made people in these ways. One from dust, one from a rib, one from parents who were past the age of childbearing. Sarah was ninety; Abraham was a hundred. By a man and a woman, the procreation process by which all of us arrived here, and He's only made one person of a woman without a man, and that's Jesus, who was born of a virgin. Matthew one eighteen twenty five it It's been prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 7.14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. His name shall be called Emmanuel. So now looking back, we know that's talking about Jesus. Now, what does it mean though? Okay, it's Jesus, but what is all this heel and head stuff? Well, let's go back and look at it briefly. And it says, uh, it shall bruise thy head. So the devil would have a head wound. And thou shalt bruise his heel... The seed of woman would have a foot wound. What does that refer to? Well, you look at Jesus when he came to the earth. There really are only two possibilities of what he's talking about. Because you have the duel in the desert in Matthew 4 when Jesus is fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. And the devil comes and tempts him to eat the bread and jump off the temple and bow down and worship him. And uh, that was a battle. So that would fit that context of it, this you know, against each other. But Jesus received no wound there, did he? Because the devil lost. The devil, Jesus did not give in to him. So although he was hungry, that was the only physical thing, the only problem that he faced there. So that one really doesn't fit. Now you can go forward a little bit farther to the end of Jesus' life when you have the events that culminated in his crucifixion. And there you have a context that fits what's going on here because here is the ultimate battle between God and the devil played out in a single location. You have Jesus, who is the Son of God, the devil's never been able to get to sin even one time, and now he has behind the scenes orchestrated these individuals, the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and the Herodians, who are using the sword, or in this case the hammer and the nail of the cross of the Romans to perform an execution... <laughs> Well, that's exactly what the devil wanted to do. He was trying to destroy Jesus. So here is this battle. Jesus has come to save. I'm going to get rid of him. No doubt there was a, uh, there was a celebration in hell on Friday when they took Jesus' limp body off of that tree and put him in a tomb dead. Yes, he's dead. Yes. But that celebration turned to mourning. On Sunday morning, when that tomb was empty, and Jesus came out alive, never to die again, the first fruits of all those that would go in the grave, who believed, who could come out and go with Him in heaven. Now, let's put it in the terms of Genesis three fifteen, head and heel bruises. Let's just let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you go home today, and uh, you kick off your shoes, you get in your comfortable clothes. Oh, I forgot to get the mail yesterday. Anybody still have a mailbox? Okay, got some mailboxes. So let's say you kicked off your shoes, you walk down the driveway, you get the, the mail, and on the way back, you, you step barefoot on a gravel. It's pretty hard. Let's say it's, it's, it's the man. <laughs> you know how we are. we will lip around. Put on my shoes. We get back to the house. Why didn't you tell me to put on my shoes? Now look what I've done to myself, you know. And then tomorrow you get out of bed and you put your foot on the floor. Ooh, hmm. And you may limp a little bit for a couple of days, but you going to go to the doctor with a bruised heel? You going to make an appointment? And go to the ER? No, oh, just a bruised heel. How long is it going to last? Two, three days maybe. Let's say somebody's on the way home today and is in an auto accident and has a head injury. You go to the hospital with that? Yes. That may, may be weeks, months in a hospital. May never recover from that. That's, that, that could be a fatal injury because you're dealing with a head. So let's take that, that same concept and go back to Genesis. So Jesus had a heel injury. You say, Well, I know what they did to Jesus. They beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They slapped him. They nailed him. They speared him after he died. I mean, that doesn't sound like a heel injury. No, 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 no. It's not about the intensity of it. It's about the duration of it. How long was he hurt? He was dead 37 hours, really, in the tomb. Which to the Jews would be three days and three nights. He came... You know, Friday by 6, Sunday morning by daylight, he was out of the tomb. Now, he got over his in three days. The devil will never get over his. He had a head injury. You know, it's not a, there's no question about who's going to win in this battle with God and the devil. God already won. When Jesus came back to life, the devil lost forever. He has a head injury he will never recover from. He's he living on borrowed time. The only question is not whether the devil is going to be lost to be in the lake of fire at the end. That's already a, a foregone conclusion. Revelation 20 and 21. The only question is, who's going to be with him when the end comes? That's the only question. Because I get to choose... Whether I want to go to be with the one whose heel was bruised or if I choose to serve self and sin and I end up going to the lake with the one whose head was bruised. That's the only question. And that's why we're here this morning. Is to better prepare ourselves to go to be with the one whose heel was bruised. That's Genesis 3.15. The first prophecy in the Bible about Jesus but it was a veiled prophecy. Let's go to the second one in Genesis 12. This is uh, in the second section of Genesis that we talked about earlier uh, in the Bible Bible class where you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. This is about Abraham. Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees. It doesn't say Ur here, but it does in Joshua 20 verse 2. It refers to it in Acts 7. that That was a pretty modern city for ancient times. It was large, had straight wide streets. It had houses with running water in them. Um, some of the houses excavated had 20 rooms. I mean, these are, you probably don't, I know I don't have 20 rooms in my house, you may not have 20 rooms in your house, but they did in some of those, and what we know about Abraham, he probably lived in one of those. But God appeared to him at some time, and said to him, uh, it's time to move. Genesis 12, 1. Get thee out of thy country, so move geographically. And from thy kindred, that means move remove from your culture, socially. And from thy father's house, that's your family. So this is going to be a drastic change. Leave where you live unto a land that I will show thee. Now God does not make, require, require, give requirements unless he gives blessings as incentives. He that believeth and is baptized, those are requirements, shall be saved. There's the blessing. You see, that's how God operates. Now you have in Genesis chapter 12 and 3, the incentive, I will make thy name great, I will bless thee, and curse him that curses thee, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed through your lineage, through your name. Now, um, I don't know exactly how this happened, but Abraham comes in. I picture him out on the, you know, the field somewhere, and he comes in. Sarah, I'm back here. Guess what? What? We're moving. What? Yeah. Where are we going? I don't know, but pack. <laughs> it's time to leave. Now he's 75, she's 65. Not a lot of people move at that stage of life. But they move and he never lived in a house again. He had opportunity to, but Hebrews 11 says he chose not to because he looked for a city as builder and maker as God. Now God said move, Abraham moved. God said I'll I'll bless you and, and God did keep those promises. Did you know that Abraham's name is revered by Christians, Jews, and Muslims this morning? Three of the great religions of the earth. All revere the name of Abraham. God kept that promise. I will, <coughs> excuse me, I will bless thee. God blessed him. Blessed him with the seed. With seed. Um, you know, he had no children at this time. But eventually, all the Jews that have ever been born, which are compared to the stars of the heaven and the sands of the seashore, trace their lineage back to Father Abraham. God kept that promise. And what about this notion of all the families of the earth will be blessed through your name? Well, one of those descendants, 42 generations later, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson was named Jesus. Matthew 1 says, And through Jesus, all the nations of the earth can be blessed. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28, Come me, all ye that labor heavy laden, And I will give you rest. So the promise was made to Abraham. And really the rest of the Old Testament is God fulfilling the promise made in Genesis 12. Because God said, Abraham, one of your descendants. Now in order to have a great nation, He said, I'll make of thee a great nation. You have to have three things. You have to have people. You have to have a law. And you have to have territory. And those three happen in that order after this promise. God, not as soon as Abraham wanted it, but God brought about Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and they became tribes. So God kept that promise of a nation, the 70. People of the family of Abraham went down into Egypt. They came out of Egypt, a a nation of two million people. God kept the promise. Then a nation needs a law. They came out of Egypt. What did God give to Moses? A law. He gave it to the people. That's Exodus 19 and 20. And then people with a law need somewhere to have their nation. Well, God, now this one God didn't give, they had to take it. And this was not the original um, homestead of the, the, the Semites, Shemites. This belonged to some of the Hamites, uh, the Canaanites, who was a son of one of the sons of Ham. Um, but anyway, you, he said, you, you can have their land because I'm getting rid of them all from it, because there's wicked sinners. So go conquer it, and that's your land. And that's what they did in the book of Joshua. So that promise was kept. Third promise, let's go to Genesis 49. We won't have much time here, but enough to to see it. This is when Jacob is old and he's blessing his 12 sons. He's doing something like we would do with riding a wheel. You know, he's saying, You get this. But it also has a prophetic element to it because God is revealing to Jacob the futures of these 12 sons and he's giving it to them. As a prophecy, and uh, most of us not very I mean they're not, they're, they're not very spiritual people, so there's, there's, some, there's some critical ideas here. But in this context of Genesis 49, he begins at verse eight to talk to Judah. Now remember, in the book of Genesis, it goes, "Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph." But the lineage of Jesus goes, "Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah not Joseph. You can see that in Matthew 1. So it's a specific branch of the descendants of Abraham. And it's eventually going to get to the specific house of David, which is a still smaller subset of that lineage. Here in Genesis uh, uh, 49, 8, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be on the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee Judah is a lion's whelp. For from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion. He rose. Who shall rouse him up? All right. So that's the immediate future in terms of Israel's history. But here's the the farther history. This is the spiritual aspect of Judah, the prophecy, the scepter. That's the symbol of rule. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, this is a promise that the nation of Judah, that's not even in existence yet, but will come into existence after Solomon dies. And it will continue to be in existence until Shiloh come. Now, very few nations last beyond 250 years. Look look at your history. Most nations last about 200 years. China would be an exception. Rome would be an exception. But even they don't last, they last about a thousand years. Well, China's still ongoing. Rome as in the ancient Rome. Anyway, Judah would last until something happened. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until... That's an adverb of time. Until. It means that this is a promise, a prophecy, that Judah will continue to be in rule and in power. Now, if you look at Israel's history, that didn't seem very likely at a lot of points in their history. For instance, they were carried into captivity for 70 years. Most nations never come out of captivity like the nation of Israel that went in before they did. The nation never came back. But Judah did. Because God made this promise that through this nation there would be a ruler born and he would be known as Shiloh. The word Shiloh means peace. Uh, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now Jesus is the magnet, isn't he? John 12, is it? thirty two, That draws all men unto him. Well, he's, he's, that's part of this prophecy. The people will be drawn to him. But the part that we're emphasizing is that Jesus is the peacemaker. And Isaiah 9, 6 says, and us, A child is born, and us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And in that context, it identifies him as the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace. It's a prophecy that goes back to Genesis 49. And of course, when Jesus stood up and said well, what we said earlier, Come to me all ye that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's the fulfillment of this. He's also... It also is fulfilled in Philippians 4, 6, peace that passes, understanding. Well, that's as much time as we have. We will extend the Lord's invitation at this point. I want to ask you this morning as we're talking about Jesus, what is your relationship with Jesus? I don't want you to answer that out loud, of course, but I want you to, um, I hope you will ask yourself and answer that to yourself. Is Jesus just somebody that you've heard about? That'd be one choice. Is Jesus just somebody that your parents believed in? Is Jesus just somebody that's sort of, kind of, important, but not, not really? Or is Jesus everything? There's really only one answer to that question that's acceptable. He's either everything or He's nothing. He doesn't take second place. He's either first place or he doesn't count. Now, I, I don't know you, or most of you I haven't even met, but those I have met, I would not know this about you and you would not know about me, but, but we know it about ourselves. Where's Jesus on my list? Have you ever become a follower of Jesus? I mean, that'd be the first, que- first question to identify the answer. Say, so, well, I'm going to. I know I'm going to one day. He just had not done it yet when? Well, maybe this year sometime. When? Well, surely before I move out of my parents' house. When? Well, by the time I graduate from college. When? Well, when I get married, I'll settle down. When? Well, as soon as things get less hectic in my life. You know we got jobs and kids and ball games and when. Well, as soon as I get all my bills paid off, then I'll I'll be ready. When? Well, I'm going to retire not too long. I think I'll do it when I'm retired. When? Well. You know, they're going to roll a casket down this hall, this aisle. In all likelihood, the Lord delays his coming. And David or someone else is going to get up and say some nice things about you. I hope he's able to say, She became a Christian. He became a Christian. And I remember well the day. He can't remember that if it doesn't ever happen. I'm just opening my heart to you this morning. Why not come to Jesus? Why not give Him your life? He has never done anything but good for you or will never do anything but good for you. You say, well, I, I did that. I became a Christian. Well, what's your relationship with Jesus now? Is He number one? I, I don't know again. I, don't, I have no idea. But if your answer is not a confident yes, the decision would be in order to put him back where he needs to be. If your life has not reflected well Christianity to your family, to your co-workers, your classmates, your neighbors, well, the rule of thumb is that the confession of sin needs to be as public as the sin So if only one person knows I can take care of it, nobody knows I take care of it. But if I don't know who knows, then I take care of it publicly so that the church can defend me and the world can know that I've made a change. And that's a wonderful blessing from God to be able to do that. So we confess sin, pray about sin, God forgives sin. Acts 8, 22. If that be your need, will you come while we stand, while we sing?